0: COVID-19 took a toll on hospital finances as many facilities stopped elective procedures for long stretches of 2020. As the daily number of new U.S. cases surge, healthcare providers were left to face new risks and exposure with the prospects of successive waves of cases. We'll discuss on this edition of In the Know. I'm Justin DeMini. During the past few months, we've seen accelerated consumer demands propelling healthcare organizations towards transformation in the realm of virtual care and the use of the Internet of Things for remote monitoring, as examples. Additional risks, such as marked increase in cyber attacks, have become increasingly more prominent for healthcare organizations. We asked Ash Shahada, KPMG's national sector leader for healthcare and life sciences, about the recent surge in cases. What vaccines or enhanced treatments could do for healthcare providers and expected transformation in the sector. My colleague Bill Borden recently sat down with Ash, and here's that discussion. Ash, thanks for joining me.
1: What does this next wave in cases mean for healthcare providers?
0: Well, thanks,
2: Bill, for the discussion. Looking forward to commenting on some of those key points today. The next wave, I think, for healthcare providers really is going to kind of come down to three things. Number one is obviously monitoring the continual resurgence of COVID in their communities, certainly working with the local health officials, and I think making sure that, again, the vital treatments and the access to care that really has been obviously a challenge throughout continues to be something that provider systems remain focused on. I'd say the other two things are the headwinds today. So now we are seeing certainly communities with infections that are beginning to affect the healthcare providers themselves. So, many of the infections appear to be not coming from the healthcare environments necessarily, but from the community spread that's affecting those that are important to the delivery of health services in our communities. So, we're starting to see, I think, a greater concern in that capacity and obviously a greater outreach to healthcare professionals to be able to take the necessary precautions so they can continue to fill their mission and vision of healthcare for their communities. And I think the third area that's going to be of continued importance is certainly managing the financial sustainability of the organizations. We've obviously seen a lot of different impacts on the site of care, the provision of services, and certainly the concern over using the healthcare facilities, especially as we start to see the ebb and flow of the virus activity in communities. You can imagine people may be a little bit more reticent to leverage their healthcare system for more of their standard healthcare needs. So I think being able to forecast your way through it Is becoming a major area of importance for health leaders and using some of the more advanced tools on predictive forecasting and financial management is something that we're starting to see quite a bit of.
1: When it comes to the financial impact, does a full hospital bed always mean something that a hospital executive would say, okay, my finances are a bit more sure than they would be if, let's say, you had an empty bed and a patient that might not be so profitable? I mean, this probably comes down to payer mix, but I'd like to hear you offer your insights on that.
2: It's a great question, you know, and it's generally a pretty complicated question. As a former hospital administrator myself, we all grew up around certainly managing bed capacity and being able to understand the level of services. Let's talk about bed capacity and we'll just talk about economics for a moment and then we'll talk a little bit about how to see our way through this. But certainly bed capacity is based on the services that many of our health systems provide. There's a licensed bed capacity, and then there's a staffed bed capacity. And the two may not always be in perfect parity. So I think one of the things we're starting to see is, and back to my earlier point around forecasting, I think as organizations get a better understanding of their capacity and their needs and their staffing, being able to match those up in kind of a real-time fashion is really important. And I think historically data and analytics is very good, but in this case, we don't really have a lot of historical data analytics to show how organizations have managed through pandemics. So when I look at year over year staffing patterns that may have been consistent for maybe decades, in this case, we can't always look to that. And we might be looking at month to month and maybe even potentially day to day as we start to see some of the ramp up in cases and the availability of our staff. I think bed capacity, staffing, and licensed bed capacity is one way to look at it. I think the other way to look at it is kind of what are the services that are actually being consumed in the system today? Clearly, we've seen, and I think we have maintained this kind of observation throughout COVID, is a reduction in, for example, ER visits. And again, a lot of that is driven by people not wanting necessarily to look to the ER, maybe delaying or postponing those care access capabilities. And I think in some cases, even using some of the new modalities of telemedicine. So I think when we look at a system's capacity today, we have to take into consideration how consumers are using the health system and what are the different points of entry. And that takes me to the third point, which is we are starting to see a consistent uptake in outpatient services. Over the last several years, health systems have expanded their capability and reach in the community. Many of those services are much more convenient. They might even be perceived as safer if patients and families don't have to come to the medical campuses. So I think when we start to look at what the system capacity is, it really is gonna be a combination of what I have in my inpatient, what I have in my digital world, and what I have in my outpatient facilities. And I would even add one leg beyond that, it's the partnerships I have in the community with physicians and other allied health professionals. So we have to really start looking at it as a systematic level, not what I have in my main hospital campus. Now, when we also talk about payer mix, that also becomes an interesting question, too, because we've obviously seen an impact across the board, really for everybody across multiple payer mixes. But in some cases, we have actually seen certainly a very strong continuation of care for the elderly, senior services, being able to manage transitions of care using long-term care, carefully and more effectively in home care. So I think the other focus that we're starting to see when you look at payer mix is how are we actually leveraging the transitions of care to optimize the care services for different age groups, different populations and different benefit structures. So that's the part that gets a little more complex. And again, when we don't have the historical data to help balance out our decision-making, we have to be looking for real-time trends and we need to be able to make adjustments on the fly.
1: So Ash, Beyond finance, how do you see some of these care models evolving after COVID 19 once we start to see new vaccines coming out?
2: I think the care model evolution is really probably one of the more exciting outcomes of this age that we're living in. So I think the care model development is really going to be an important one. Again, just like we just had a good discussion around bed capacity and staffing. As we start to look at the full care continuum, that now becomes the calculus of how we look at the services in our community. So I think we're gonna start to see a really good, strong, sustained business model around the transitions of care from home care to the inpatient, to the outpatient facilities, and also leveraging community health assets. So the whole notion that we've been working towards around population health is really now starting to become a reality And I know it's been hard for systems to begin to really think about risk taking and looking at a population level basis on health and wellness. But I think one of the things we've learned about this whole environment we're living in, it's health and wellness and vaccinations and certainly caring for higher risk, higher vulnerable populations. It's teaching us the tools around how to really be better citizens and better care delivery networks for our communities. And I think of special importance, we're learning quite a bit around how to also support some of the underserved communities. We've been doing a lot of work recently with several grants and organizations like Morehouse School of Medicine, where we've seen some very, very good research and very targeted and focused advances on how we're going to plan the distribution of the vaccine to underserved and inner city communities. So we're also learning quite a bit more around how to engage, maybe in ways that we haven't been so successful in the past using digital engagement as potentially a digital front door, something that we've become accustomed to in this pandemic. And I think the other thing we're going to start to see is how to build a continued engagement at the patient community level. Because, you know, obviously the vaccine is going to take, in some cases, multiple doses, multiple interventions, multiple engagement with community. So to me, those are all the pieces of the puzzle that have to come together. And we're learning how to do it for COVID We're going to learn how to do it maybe a little bit more for the vaccine. But long term, we've got to get really good about caring for our communities in this manner.
1: So, beyond seeking CARES Act funds, how have some of the healthcare providers responded?
2: So, I think that certainly the CARES Act funds and some of the earlier relief programs that we've seen were really a kind of a result of helping to get in and jump right in and support the system to make sure that it's resilient. I think what we're seeing now is what I call a tale of two cities, right? You've seen organizations that really have the financial wherewithal and the support and the ability to really kind of take this opportunity and build upon their success. So those organizations are really moving forward. You know, they're looking at expanding, doing more in community health. We've seen a lot of notable M&A deals start to get announced. We've even seen the entrance of private equity and tech investments I think you're going to see a sector of the health economy really grow and prosper because they're literally learning a lot and they're really coming up with new and interesting combinations of health services. I think on the other hand, you are seeing, I think, even post CARES Act funding, many organizations continue to suffer. And I think certainly we're going to continue to see that dislocation in the health economy. I think you're going to see potentially providers that are going to be maybe accelerating their move to early retirement. Some of them are also looking at joining larger health systems, maybe exacerbating that move a bit. So I do think there is going to be kind of a pretty remarkable dislocation that we're starting to see now that will likely continue through next year until the volumes get back to some parity. So I think at the end of the day, those are the things that we want to be observant to is who are the teams and organizations and leadership groups that are going to really grow and expand and create new delivery systems. And who is going to kind of drive a different mob?
1: Now, you mentioned some of the healthcare providers possibly looking to join larger systems. How much would you say the mergers and acquisition climate has changed in the healthcare sector since COVID 19 hit in March?
2: I think it's interesting. You know, obviously, everything was put on hold for certainly the first wave that we've seen. I will say that. People really thought about it in a lot of different ways and a lot of different patterns. and I think people have come out of it now being much more opportunistic. And what I really see forming are really three areas. Number one is health tech. One thing we've learned is that modernization of our systems, our processes, being able to really elevate our game and then take this opportunity to really modernize some of the things that we've been thinking about modernizing so i think that's an area that we're starting to see a pretty good wave of technology into healthcare and we're seeing acquisitions of companies in that space and it's not just provider technology but it could be also some of the systems that payers use and also operationalize their systems i think that's been the early wave and that was an area that was never really negatively impacted i think the second wave is the consolidation wave which could be a consolidation of health systems provider organizations and that consolidation can come a larger health system consolidation, and it can also come with payer-provider consolidation. We're seeing that as well, where some of the payers, both commercial and non-commercial payers, are looking at expanding their ability to serve their communities by actually acquiring provider practices. So that's, I think, been able to pick up. And then finally, the third area, which I think you're going to start to see now, is potentially the distressed asset acquisition. So Again, these are going to be the organizations that may have had difficulty post CARES Act funding. They might still see longer-term volume issues. And I think you're going to see that third wave of mergers and acquisitions. Now, I would also say, just to kind of underpin the M&A discussion, there are very interesting investment vehicles that we've seen. The SPACs that are coming together that are essentially taking shape, and our economist calls them the zombie companies, those who are capitalized that never grew. And instead of going traditional IPO, we're starting to see kind of infusion of capital new assets into those structures. So that's been pretty interesting to watch. Healthcare actually was one of the leading segments in that category. So that one, we're going to probably continue to see growth on this year. And I think the other area you're going to start to see very solid growth is there's a lot of interest in long-term care, assisted living, some of the things that have always been popular. But, you know, we're seeing investments from both within and outside the U.S., on moving into these spaces. They're obviously important from a demographic perspective, but we're also seeing organizations come in with net new ideas. How do I create a modern delivery system for our seniors, understanding all the things that we just went through within the last several months? So I think it's not just acquiring them for the value of the assets, but acquiring them to help modernize and create new business models. That's something I think we're starting to see quite a
1: bit of. This is a bit of a political question, but what's the likelihood of any new stimulus coming to the hospitals now that we have election day behind us?
2: Well, I think overall, from what we're hearing, the economy certainly is going to probably be an area of consideration for additional stimulus. Clearly, health care, I think our country has recognized whether we want to call it kind of a national level stimulus or part of the economic stimulus programs. We have, I think, recognized that healthcare now has to become a more important resilient sector, not only within the last year, the impact of COVID, but I think going forward. So I think the chances are good that we're going to see continued focus on assisting our healthcare providers and professionals. I believe that you're going to see stimulus in the form of supporting organizations in terms of expanding their ability for certainly the vaccine programs. And I think you're going to start to see potential support, and it could be stimulus or other programs around social services and just making sure that we're actually looking at the supply chain of healthcare a little bit more cautiously going forward, because what we're hearing from the experts, we might see a wave of more types of vaccines and maybe more focus on research and development. So I think the stimulus should be something we need to think about. It's not just a recovery stimulus, but maybe it's ongoing stimulus in the sector to help with R&D, distribution and being able to essentially recapitalize and create kind of a focus on health and wellness in this country.
1: Almost like treating it like a public utility, let's say.
2: Exactly. If you think of like a public utility, or we've come out of kind of post-war environments, right, where we've reinvested in our infrastructure and our roads and our bridges and our national security, now I think you're going to start to see, you know, a lot of very positive, likely, agreement across multiple parties that says, you know what, this is something that we've all come through together and we need to kind of rebuild the health economy because it's something that we've learned that we can't go without.
0: For additional information, please contact Bill Borden at WBorden at KPMG.com. That's WBorden at KPMG.com. And as always, thanks for listening. In the Know is now available wherever your favorite podcasts are found. Feel free to download and subscribe via the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play, or Stitcher. Simply search KPMG's In the Know, and we'll see you next time on In the Know.